It's not enough, beloved. It's not enough or or true to scripture to, to just say that God let this happen. God allowed this to happen. The reason why is because God is a God who determines and decrees. God is a God who ordains and orchestrates. God is a God who plans and predetermines. He rules and he reigns and he guides and he governs everything that comes to pass. That's that's what it means for God to be God. And though it might melt the hard drive of our minds, we must come to grips with the fact that there are no such thing as accidents. No coincidences. There's no karma or luck. There's nothing left to chance. No, all there is is God. And every moment of life is the result of his decree. As much as the subject of sovereignty might make us squirm in our seats, Solomon in Ecclesiastes offers no apologies for it and in fact spends an entire chapter unfolding it. And that very chapter is where we find ourselves this morning. And the reason why we're here and not in Isaiah, where we normally would be, is because this weekend, you know, we had our annual conference on theology. The subject, of course, was the sovereignty of God. And in particular, the sovereignty of God over sin and suffering and Satan and evil. What we learned and what we saw this weekend is that in some staggering mystery beyond our pay grade as finite human beings that God even ordained that sin and evil would exist. That it was no accident. That God himself wrote sin and evil into the script before time began. And all of it was to bring maximum glory to his name and maximum joy to our souls in his glory as we see sin and evil crushed beneath his feet. Scott, our speaker, said in his book, which you should and must read, a baffling and glorious statement. He said, a fallen but needing redemption world is far better than a unfallen, not needing redemption world. And the reason is because a fallen world marred by sin sets the stage for the Savior to come and put an end to sin. Or to put it another way, sin and evil exists as the sovereign design of God to put the supremacy of his Son on open display. I know that's a bit of a shock. I know that's a lot to handle. And frankly, what it does is is it shakes our view of God, and and yet it is biblical, it is true, and it is good for us. Frankly, to be honest, we have too easily absorbed the fun God of American Christianity, haven't we? We've too easily let the lords of human logic And free will, whatever that means, override what the prophets and apostles actually say in the text of Scripture. We have lost and we need to regain a vision of God, matchless and supreme, who does not ask. 
ask for man's permission to rule them, but simply does so with sovereign love and authority. This is a God who never leaves anything to chance. He's always on time. He's always in control. He, he works all things out according to the counsel of his will. And you understand this is the God of Ecclesiastes. And the thing about Ecclesiastes is that sovereignty is central to its message. You see, Solomon's aim in this book is to unfold, you remember, the meaning of life itself. That's why Ecclesiastes is in your Bible. It gives the meaning of life. And you remember in Solomonic terms what the meaning of life is. Chapter 12, verse 13. It is to fear God and keep his commandments. That's Solomon's way of putting the meaning of life. And yet, and yet, any book about the meaning of life just has to deal with the subject of sovereignty, doesn't it? It has to. And the reason is because the sovereignty of God is the grand context by which we make sense out of the world and our purpose in that world. The universe does not even begin to make sense unless there is a sovereign all governing God at the center of everything. And I realized, I realized that divine sovereignty is a hard pill for human beings to swallow at first. The gag reflex of human logic seems to argue against it. But this morning you need to understand that everything in your lives is very intentional. It's very intentional. According to the sovereign pleasure of God, he has brought you here to this exact moment in your life. So there's a sense even of destiny about this moment in time which has been planned and prepared by God before the foundation of the world. So I want you to discover and behold with me in God's word, the breathtaking sovereignty by which God orders all that comes to pass. And it's found in Ecclesiastes chapter 3. Here we go. This morning, I want you to see from our text three inescapable realities. Three inescapable realities. You cannot escape them, nor should you want to. Realities about the sovereignty of God that give us ultimate meaning and satisfaction in life. Three inescapable realities of sovereignty that give us ultimate meaning and satisfaction in life. Reality number one is this. First, remember that sovereignty is all-embracing. Remember that sovereignty is all-embracing. What I mean is everything is included and there is nothing left to chance. <laughs> and yet you should know that some people, some people, they disagree. Some people say that this chapter isn't about the sovereignty of God at all, that it's really about the things for which I am responsible because Solomon does say in the text, there is a time to plant, there is a time to build, there is a time to embrace, there is a time to love. I did that. Those are actions. That was me. This chapter isn't about the sovereignty of God at all, but about human free will and responsibility. Some will say, and yet not so fast. It doesn't add up. Because if you look at what Solomon actually says in its context, you have no choice left but to see this chapter poetically displaying God's undisputed control over everything. Why? Lots of reasons. I'll give you one. I'll give you one. In verse 11, Solomon says, God makes everything. And the word literally there in Hebrew, yafeh, beautiful. God makes everything beautiful in its time. 
God makes everything beautiful in its time. God makes everything beautiful in its time. God makes everything beautiful in its time. Do you see what I'm doing? This is incredible. Solomon's objective is not to talk about the decisions of human beings, but the predetermined decisions of God himself. And yet we have to ask the question, what is the sovereignty of God? What does it mean that God is sovereign? There's a whole bunch of different ways you could slice it, cook it, bake it, present it, preach that. Here is one definition of sovereignty. Sovereignty, get this, is the invincible power of God by which he accomplishes everything he predestined to do before time began. That's sovereignty. It is the invincible power of God by which he accomplishes everything he predestined to do before time began. In other words, like a glorious all-governing architect before time, he drew out the blueprints of the plan for history, and in real time, he is building what he drew. God, like an all-wise, all-governing director, wrote the script of history before time. And now in real time, he is directing every scene and every line of what he wrote before time. Do you see? Paul's clear about this. Ephesians 1.11, God is working all things out according to the counsel of his will. All things. He is working all things out according to what? Not according to anything else, but his will. The counsel of his will. Psalm 115, verse 3, our God is in the heavens. He does whatever he pleases. You understand, God is not some celestial wimp imprisoned by man's resistance. The, the, the precious free will of human beings is but a house of cards next to Yahweh's omnipotence. Daniel 4, 35, out of the mouth of Nebuchadnezzar, no less. He, God, does according to his will in the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. And no one can stay his hand or say to him, what have you done? No, this, this is the God of the Bible. This is the God of Ecclesiastes. And Solomon wants you to know that his sovereignty is all embracing. Look again at the deliciously repetitive and redundant words in verses 1 through 8. There is a time for everything and a time for every event under heaven, a time to be born, a time to die, a time to plant, a time to uproot what is planted, a time to kill, a time to heal, a time to tear down, a time to build, a time to weep, a time to laugh, a time to mourn, and a time to dance time to cast stones and a time to gather stones, a time to embrace, a time to refrain, shun embracing, a time to seek, a time to, one way you could render this as, to lose, a time to keep and a time to throw away, a time to tear apart and a time to sew together, a time to be silent and a time to speak, a time for love and a time for hate, a time for peace, a time for war and a time for peace. 
And you notice there in verse one, the two terms for time and the repetition of the word everything. Do you see that? You understand all of human history is literally contained in that verse. All of history. God sets the seasons. God designed the days. The tapestry of time is woven by him. There's no exceptions to this. Every single moment is under God's meticulous control. He's not just generally or kind of sovereign. No, his control is comprehensive and profoundly particular. Everything from the stock market to every roll of the dice in Las Vegas, he determines the role. The paths of meteors in space and the paths of bullets in war. It's up to him where they go. He controls it all. And you think, well, that settles it. If that's what you say, if that's what you believe the Bible says, well, then surely that means our actions are insignificant and that we're not responsible. And yet the opposite is the case. Just because it's predestined doesn't mean it's pointless. Right, right. The, the sovereignty of God doesn't make our actions meaningless. It gives the most meaning to our actions. Why? Because our actions, willingly and deliberately performed by us, are the means by which God unfolds his plan on the stage of history. What we do and what we say is but the predestined participation in a plan that God ordained before the galaxies were made. That changes everything. And then Solomon does the most obvious thing. He unfolds for us in exact detail just the kinds of things that God ordains. And we saw them in verse 1. He gives 14 illustrations of the kinds of things God ordains and for the good of our own souls, we're gonna look at every single one of them. We have to, we just have to. And the first one is in verse two, look what he says. He says, there is a time to be born or a time to give birth and a time to die. It's interesting, Solomon begins the poem at the beginning, at your beginning. And not only did you not decide the time in which you were gonna be born, you did not decide to be born at all. That was decided for you. And not even your parents could decide that. Not even they could predict that because the exact moment of your existence was planned and predetermined by God himself. That is the point. I was born October 2nd, 1978 at 1246 a.m. Why 1246? Why not 1250? Why not even one o'clock? Because God wanted it that way. And knowing that, remembering that, gives, it tells us that there's meaning and purpose to our existence. And not only is there a time to be born, there's also a time to die. And even that was determined by God. You can't predict it. You can't change that. You can't alter that. Life and death and everything in between has been ordained by God. And you understand what that does is free us, doesn't it? It frees us. To live for God's glory without restraint, knowing that even the day of our death has been determined, and until that day, we are invincible. Illustration number two. There is a time to plant and a time to uproot what is planted. Huh. 
I mean, this is just so profound, right? Because his point is not that we plant flowers and trees and tear out weeds, although we do do that. His point is whenever planting and tearing out is done, that was decreed by God. You see, sovereignty is in the details. It's in the details. This is God's universe, is it not? This is God's earth, is it not? Those are God's plants, God's flowers, God's trees. He decides when they are planted. He decides when they are removed. Psalm 104 corroborates the point. Listen to what it says. He, God, he causes grass to grow for the cattle. And vegetation for the labor of man. The trees of Yahweh drink their fill. Even the trees of Lebanon, which he planted. Do you see? Illustration number three, look what he says in verse three. There is a time to kill, and there is a time to heal. There are, unfortunately, appropriate times to kill in a fallen world. There's war, there's self-defense, there's the death penalty, but you see, not even, not even that is Solomon's point. Not even that is his point. Rather, his point is whenever someone is killed, and this is going to be tough to handle, whenever someone is killed in some mystery, hard though it be to fathom, God is the one who appointed the day of their death. No, no, that does not justify murder. Or make it any less atrocious. No one believes that. But rather, he's simply saying that every, the path of every bullet in history and every arrow in history was written down before the universe was made. And this is most clearly exemplified in the death of Christ, right? His death, his murder, Acts 4, 27 and 28, was predetermined by God before there were even any sinners in existence. And yet, to our great relief, there's not only a time to kill, there's also a time to heal. And anytime anyone is healed instantaneously through the uh, miracle working of an apostle or through grueling months of chemotherapy, whenever anyone is healed, it is because it was ordained by God. This is the unanimous testimony of the Bible. Deuteronomy 32:39, Yahweh says, And now, behold, I am He. And there is no one besides me. He says, I am the one who put to death. I am the one who makes alive. I am the one who wounds. And I am the one who heals. Illustration number four. There is a time to tear down. And there is a time to build. Now, Skookum Bowling Alley on Knob Hill Boulevard in Yakima, Washington, where I had my first job, no longer exists. It doesn't exist anymore. It's been torn down years. The big, dumpy red house on Perry Street in Spokane, Washington, where I lived during college, they tore it down years ago. There's no trace that it ever even existed. And, and the reason is because there is a time to tear down and there is a time to build. Buildings come and go. Civilizations come and go. And Solomon wants you to know that whenever this happens in history, it is because God is the one who gave the order. I hope you believe in a God of comprehensive sovereignty. I hope you believe that, that there's nothing accidental, there's nothing left to chance. 
We just live in a world of comprehensive sovereignty. Illustration number five, verse four, there is a time to mourn and there is a time to laugh. And we know that well, don't we, in a fallen world? We weep at funerals. We laugh at jokes. That's just life. And, and, and yet, what Solomon wants to clobber you with is that whenever we weep or we laugh, God is the one who brought the circumstances in which we weep or laugh. And Job understood this, didn't he? Chapter 2, verse 10, after losing all of his children, all of his finances, all of his businesses, all of his, his employees and his health, he said this, shall we indeed accept good from God and shall we not accept evil that is the Hebrew word, ra, evil. Shall we not accept this and not this? Job knew better than anyone that whether you're weeping or you're laughing, it is all ultimately providentially given by God. And he worshiped him for it. Illustration number six. There's a time, there's a time to mourn and there's a time to dance. Here, here they are, the, the depths of sadness and the heights of elation, Right? When you mourn, when you mourn, you're sad. You, you, you mourn when you're sad. You dance when you're delighted. And yet, yet, both of these moments have been planned and prepared by God himself. Do you see? And so you could totally see, right, how Solomon wants you to view the world. Whether it's devastation or celebration, whether it's tragedy or triumph, whether it's pain or pleasure, even these moments have been written into the script. Illustration number seven, look at verse five. There's a time to cast stones. There is a time to gather stones. And that sounds weird and scholars are kind of divided on what that might mean. But I think Solomon's point is clear. I think it means that the providence of God extends even to inanimate objects that you didn't know or even care existed like rocks in a field. And yet how much more valuable to God are you than rocks? Illustration number eight, there was a time to embrace and there's a time to shun embracing. <laughs> Some people you hug, other people you handshake. Some people you embrace, other people you avoid. You hug mom and dad and family and sometimes friends. You don't hug the cop who pulled you over. You don't hug the cashier who took your order. And all of this, the point is every person that crosses your path, the boundaries of those relationships are wisely determined by God himself. Illustration number nine, there is a time to seek and there is a time to lose. Or maybe your version says to give up as lost. And that's incredible, isn't it? I mean, we, we look for things and we find things and whether we lose them or we find them, that, that even that God ordains, even that is under his jurisdiction. The point is God ordains the moments when we are in need. God ordains the moments when we acquire what we need. Everything is accounted for in the plan of God, and there is nothing that is not included. Illustration number 10. There's a time to keep, and there is a time to throw away. I lived this theology when I first got married. 
I had many things, many things that I brought into our first apartment that my wife was confused as to why I kept that item. Horrible, disgusting t-shirts that are now long gone, that I resisted and fought to keep. Albums of baseball cards that I hadn't looked at in years. I fought her on those. I lost. <laughs> and the point is we, we treasure souvenirs and antiques and keepsakes and rare items and collectibles, right? We, we have those things. We, we throw stuff away and we never think about it again. And there's a theology underneath that. And the theology is both treasure and trash are ordained by God. You understand this is not a world of the happenstance and accidental. This is a world of the providential and the intentional all under the all embracing domain of God. Illustration number 11. There's a time to tear apart. There's a time to sew together. And you're like, okay, that's crazy. That's crazy. Are, are, you, are you saying that the, even the tearing and sewing of fabric is ordained by God? That's crazy. It's not crazy. It's not crazy because I'll have you know that the very garment Christ was wearing when he was arrested was predicted by God in Psalm 22 to be torn apart by his murderers when he was being crucified. Even that was ordained. God is in the details. Number 12. There was a time to be silent and a time to speak. Time to be silent and a time to speak. And that's true, right? A witness on the stand. A preacher in the pulpit. A man waiting on his knee with an open ring box waiting for an answer of yes or no. There was a time to speak. There was a time to be silent. Job's Friends understood this. You remember that when they first saw him after his accumulated sufferings, they didn't say a single word for seven days. Christ didn't say anything to Herod the king, but he spoke openly to Pontius Pilate. Why? Because there is a time to be silent. There is a time to speak. And even those times are ordained by God. Number 13, Solomon blows our mind. Look at verse 8. There is a time for love and a time for hate. Even love and hate are part of the plan. Even those are from the hand of God. In verse 14, equally shocking to the senses, there is a time for war and there is a time for peace. And you don't have to like war and no one does, but you do need to believe that God ordains it and reigns over it. The first shot of the Civil War came at God's command. The final war between Christ and Satan has already been planned and determined and decided. So you, you just see what Solomon is doing here, don't you? You can tell exactly what he's doing. He wants you and I to view the world through a particular pair of lenses. That all of life, every moment of life is the uninterrupted domain of God's divine activity. There's no such thing as fate. This is not fatalistic. There's no accidents. Now, you, you understand that this chapter exists to let you know that the universe doesn't even begin to make sense unless there is a sovereign, glorious God at the center of it all. And what that does is sustain us, doesn't it? It has to. It sustains us. This is the immovable anchor that we cling to when everything else is ripped and torn apart. 
Now again, listen carefully. This doesn't mean that we have to have Zen, Buddhist, poker-faced indifference to the curveballs of life. That's not what this means. You, you, the, the sovereignty of God is not an anesthetic that, that makes the pain magically go away. That's not the point. The point is, at the most foundational level of our souls, we are sustained and supported by the soul-comforting reality that everything comes from the good and loving and kind hand of God, and somehow it will be turned for our good. You understand, sovereignty is for our sanity. Providence is for our perseverance. God's control over the world is by far our greatest comfort in the world. Reality number two. Reality number two, remember, remember that sovereignty is liberating. Sovereignty is liberating. And not everyone feels this way. A lot of people feel that the sovereignty of God is nothing but a problem to be solved or, a, or an obstacle to be avoided, right? They, they, they hear the doctrine and all they see are the problems. All they can think of are objections. All they can think of are, is resistance to this. And I have prayed for you this week. I'm not assuming this is happening, but I know I've had these conversations. I've prayed for you that instead of being cynical and defensive and skeptical, that you would yield in sweet submission to the God who is sovereign. And what's so ironic is that because God is in control and we are not, that means that there are certain limitations in life, right? There are things that you can and cannot do in light of the sovereignty of God. And, and, and we think, okay, well, if there is restraint, then, then we are limited and there's, something, there's some joy that's prevented from us. If, if we're limited in some way, well, then that means that, that is an obstacle to overcome. But see, Solomon wants you to know that those very limitations are to your advantage. This is for your advantage. And he gives two God-imposed limitations in light of God's sovereignty. The first one's found in verse 9. Look what he says. It's a tricky text. It's not easy, but he says, what is the profit or the advantage or the benefit to the worker in that which he labors? So he puts it in the form of a question, you notice. And again, don't be baffled by the, the translation worker. That's really not the, the best. That's kind of, that's not super clear to render it that way, because in our mind, it kind of sounds like an employee at a job, and that's not what he means. The Hebrew simply says, the one who works. Or even better, the one who does. That's what it says. And all he means, get this, all he means by that are the normal activities of life. That's it. What we do to live and survive and achieve and live lives of significance, that's all he's describing. And yet, do you see the limitation in light of God's sovereignty? He puts it in the form of a question. What is the advantage to the one who works in that which he labors? And you can tell he anticipates a negative response to his question, right? And the answer is nothing. There is no advantage or benefit to the one who works in that which he labors. Before you start scrounging around for stones to throw at me or Solomon, what he does not mean, what he does not mean 
listen carefully, he's not saying that what we do doesn't matter, because it profoundly does matter. He just said at the end of the last chapter that our work and our labor is good. This book is filled with commands to do, to do things and labor things, that our labor and work is good. But his point here, listen carefully, is that what we do doesn't change the plan, God's plan. That's the limitation. And that's a good thing, isn't it? I mean, seriously, could you be happy if the supposed free will of man could derail what God had planned? Could you sleep at night if God's control over history was so flimsy and malleable that it could be altered by the plans and deeds of human beings? No, no, you and I cannot alter what God has ordained. We cannot derail what God has decreed. You can't fidget with the program and crash, fidget with the code and crash the program of God's plan. You can't. It is set. It is certain. It is as unchangeable as God himself. And the implication of this is clear and unmistakable. Happiness is sweet submission to the God who is sovereign. We need to train our eyes and our minds to interpret every moment of life through the silent and invisible providence of God. And you just think about the things you're going through right at this moment. Just, just think about the things that you're dealing with. Some of you have incredible chaos in your lives. Maybe it's your fault, maybe it's not. There's pressure, there's anxiety. There's fear, there's disappointment, there's confusion about what you're supposed to do in a particular situation. Some of you have great pain and loneliness and temptation in your lives. And in these moments, we are tempted to think, where is God in this? I don't see him. I don't get the sense that he is involved anywhere in this situation. And yet you have to be careful. You have to be really, really careful with this because just because you cannot see him doesn't mean he isn't there. You have to remember that sovereignty doesn't always feel how we think sovereignty should feel. In fact, most times, it doesn't feel like anything. But that doesn't mean he is not there in that moment working all things for your everlasting good. No matter what it looks like or feels like in the moment, God is there in the totality of his being and he is doing something profound. Namely, preparing you for an eternal weight of glory far beyond all comparison. God forbid that Romans 8 would be cliche in our lives. And we know, we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who could be against us? He who did not spare his own son, 
but delivered him over for us all, how will he not also with him freely give us all things? That's a good question. Limitation number two, and this is going to be heavy lifting. Gird yourselves. Limitation number two, look at verses 10 and 11. Solomon makes an observation. He says, I have seen the task or the occupation which God gave to the sons of man with which to be concerned. He makes all things, remember, it's beautiful. He makes all things beautiful in its time. Even he put eternity in their heart. And yet he did it this way so that man would not discover the work which God has done from the beginning and until the end. That is profound. You notice there in verse 10 that God has given a gift to human beings. Do you see that? I've seen, I've seen the occupation God has given to the sons of man with which to be concerned. God has given a gift and it is an occupation. And in the context of the book as a whole, the occupation is the longing in every heart to know the meaning of life. That's the gift. That's incredible, right? Every human wants to know meaning and significance. And Ecclesiastes is clear. God is the one who put that there. Huh. And yet follow the logic of the theologian, verse 11. He, God, makes everything beautiful in its time. Even he put, notice this, this is an incredible statement. Even he put eternity in their heart. Yet, so that man will not discover the work which God did from the beginning and until the end. That is just incredible. And it reveals so much about who God is and who we are. And notice again that the jarring statement, he makes all, everything beautiful in its time. That has got to be and is one of the most staggering assertions of the sovereignty of God in the pages of the Bible. And by everything, he means everything that exists, everything that happens. Everything in human history is made beautiful by God even the moments of sin and pain and crisis and trial and agony, even those are made beautiful by God. Not that they're beautiful in themselves because they're not. But in the context of the plan of God as a whole, God will make them beautiful. And you think, that's impossible. That, that, that is impossible. There's no way that that pain or that suffering or that crisis can be made beautiful. And yet we only feel that way because we don't understand what it means for God to be God. We can't, listen carefully, we can't comprehend a God sovereign enough to craft a plan that will be more beautiful in the end because of the presence of sin and evil today. Huh. We can't imagine how at the end of time, how the dark and blackened shades of pain and sin and the bright and beautiful glory and love of God will be merged together in a masterpiece made more beautiful than if sin and evil had never existed. And I know that's a lot to handle, to wrap your brains around, but 
if, if we could just hang on a little longer and know that God is a master artist and he is not done with his masterpiece. That sustains us. Solomon goes on. He still hasn't given the limitation yet. Verse 11, he makes all things beautiful in its time. Even he put eternity in their heart. Do you see what he's describing there? What does it mean? It means that God implanted in the human heart, get this, not just a curiosity, but a craving for eternity, right? It's embedded in the very DNA of our souls to think about forever and what happens after death and to long for the springs of eternal life. That's just who we are. And you have to understand, God is the one who put that there. And yet hear very carefully the limitation that God also included. Here it is. Here's the limitation. Verse 11. He makes all things beautiful. Got it. Put eternity in our hearts. Got it. Yet, notice, yet, so that man will not or can not discover the work which God did from the beginning and until the end. Did you hear the limitation? Did you hear it? God makes all things beautiful, verse 10. God put eternity in our hearts, verse 11. But the punchline is, the punchline is people on their own, with their own finite logic and reason, will never discover any of those things on their own. That's the limitation. That's the limitation he wants you to see. You see, unless God supernaturally reveals that to us, like through his word, we can't see through human eyes. We can't logic out with human reasoning that God is sovereign. Oh, obviously God is sovereign. Human logic, that's not what we see. With mere human logic and powers of observation, we don't know what the beginning was. We don't know that. Through human logic and observation, we don't know what the end will be. We can't predict that. You see... We can smell the feast of eternity. But on our own, without supernatural intervention, we can't find the feast. We can ask the right questions, maybe. But on our own, with our own human reason and logic, we cannot find the answer. We're sort of, it's like we're stuck in a traffic jam. Life is like a traffic jam. We're, we're caught in the middle. And we can't see the beginning, how it started. We can't see the end, how this thing is going to end up. Do you see what I'm saying? This is what Solomon is after. We can't see through merely human eyes that God is in perfect sovereign control. And that is the limitation. And that was a stroke of genius, wasn't it? On God's part, wasn't it? If we want to know the truth, it has to come from him alone. 1 Corinthians 1.21, for since in the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom did not come to know God. You see, we grow up on our own. Without Christ breaking into our lives, we grope and fumble in the darkness. We, we trip and we stumble in the shadows until or unless we hear the word of God and the life-saving gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, who wasn't just a man, he is God. And he didn't just live, but the life he lived was sinless and perfect. 
And he didn't just live, he died. And the death that he died was for sinners in their place. And he didn't just die, he lived. Rose triumphant from the grave. And at this moment, he is alive. Not here on earth, but at the right hand of the Father, ruling all things. And when he arrives again, and mark my words, he will arrive again. He will sit on a throne and rule as king and make all things right and be worshipped by the nations. And beloved, if you haven't done so already, you are going to have to choose. Either you are against him or you are for him. And if you're against him, you've already lost. The wrath of God abides upon you even at this moment. The flames of the lake of fire are kindled. And it doesn't have to be that way. You don't have to go there. You can yield. You can yield in repentance and faith and yield to him. Because if you are in Christ and you are with Christ in glad-hearted allegiance and faith, you have to be all the way, not part way, all the way. Counting all things as loss compared to the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus as the treasure of your soul. And there is nothing more liberating than that. I still have time. I have one more point. I can do this. <laughs> Inescapable reality number three. Number three, remember that sovereignty is renovating. Sovereignty is renovating. What I mean is it it renovates your life. It's practical. There is a profound practical power to sovereignty. It changes your life, in other words. And Solomon gives us, and I'll close with this very quickly, six, six implications of the sovereignty of God. Numbers one and two are a package deal. Look at verse 12. In response, in, in light of the sovereignty of God, Solomon says, I know, look what he says, look very carefully, I know that there is nothing better for them, for people, than to do what? rejoice and do good in their lives. That's the application in light of the sovereignty of God. Rejoice and do good in your life. That is incredible. Would you have picked that as a response? A life of stable joy just belongs to those who know that God is in every moment in the fullness of his being. And you understand the joyless fear and anger and complaining and selfishness in our lives is directly connected to a view of God who is just too small to hold a hurricane in his hand. Implication number three. Implication number three, in light of the sovereignty of God, what should man do? Look what he says. This is in verse 13. What should man do but eat and drink and see good in his labor? It is the gift of God. That's practical. You can't get more practical than eating and drinking and working a job. Huh. Look at that. And this is incredible. And Solomon's what he's after here is not merely praying before a meal or not having a bad attitude at work. Rather... He wants us to live the reality of sovereignty in the beauty of the mundane. Do you see that there's no such thing as a secular moment? Every moment is a divine moment because God is there in the totality of his being. 
It's a sample of sovereignty. Instead of always frantically and frenetically scrambling to the next event to entertain us, that instead you would slow down and savor your grilled cheese and tomato soup. You would slow down and enjoy your latte. That you would pause and see that what you're doing is wor at your work may be not particularly interesting to you at the time, but can you delight in the good that comes from your work? Can, can you rejoice in this moment as part of what God is doing in human history? In other words, his point is, because God is sovereign, listen carefully, we can be content. Let me say this, and this is going to sound trite and flippant, and I don't mean it to be. The moment you're in is where happiness is. The moment you're in is where happiness is because God is there in the fullness of his glory. Number four. Look at verse 14. This is incredible. I know, he says, I know that everything God does, it will remain forever. There is nothing to add to it. There is nothing to take away from it. In other words, God's plan is perfect and unchangeable. And that's hard. That is really hard for us to accept, isn't it? In fact, it takes God-given supernatural faith to look at your life and to look at the world with all of its pain and suffering and to say, this is the best possible plan. There was not an alternative plan better than the one that's unfolding in the world right now. If I or God added to his plan, it would be a less great plan. If I or God took away from his plan, it would mar its beauty and diminish its glory and reduce our joy at the end of the age. Do you see? That's the faith that Solomon wants us, wants to create in us. And, and I, don't, I don't think necessarily that God is asking us to just get this and understand this. He may not even be asking us to like this at first. But we do need to trust him. And to remember that God is the God of happy endings. God is the God of the plot twist. There is a way to make all the pain you endure in this life worth it in the end. Number five. Number five, he says, the implication is there at the end of verse 14. He says that our response, I'll just say this quickly. He, he says that God has worked so that men may fear him. In other words, we should stand in awe of who God is in light of his sovereignty. The right response to sovereignty is fear, to fear God. And implication number six, and then we're done. Look at verse 15, and I'll translate it from the Hebrew. It might be slightly different than what you've got, but I think it'll make sense. He says, what is already it was? And what is to be it was already? And God seeks that which has passed by. That's a really tricky statement, and scholars are really battle over there. Lots of debate about the meaning, but I think the point is clear. I think the point is, what goes around comes around. That's what he's saying. What goes around comes around. 
Not by itself, not on its own, because that's the way God designed it. I think the point is that from our perspective, things look messy and tattered and chaotic and, and frantic and random and unpredictable, but Solomon assures us the exact opposite is the case. It's organized confusion. There, there, there's a method to the madness. The past, present, and future are bound together, and God controls it all. And that last statement, baffling statement, God seeks that which has passed by. What is he saying? I, I think he's saying that even the things in the past that have transpired, that God is able to retrieve those and turn even those moments for good. That gets his point. This is the God of Ecclesiastes. This is the God of the Bible. This is a God who rules and reigns. A God who predetermines and plans. A God who ordains and orchestrates. A God who guides and governs everything that comes to pass for the glory of his Son. And the question is, I'm, I'm done, kind of. The question is, do you trust him? Do you trust him? Not merely do you acknowledge his existence, do you trust him to do what he does best, namely run the universe with absolute ease? What I want to know is, could you even worship a God who wasn't sovereign? What I want to know is, do you not feel in your very soul that the evidence of the Father's love for you is his gracious control over your life? Beloved, you have to understand, we're not... We're not organisms pounding on the door of some ogre's castle in hopes of mercy. We are beloved, chosen children of God. Chosen and predestined. Made in his image, saved by his grace, washed in our Savior's blood, redeemed forever and ever. And oh, by the way, he is absolutely sovereign, which makes everything we know about him to be all the more sweet. I'm not saying this is easy because it's not. I'm not saying this is simple because it's not. I'm just saying it is exhilarating and it is essential to our satisfaction. You might not be able to see that God is in control. You might not be able to explain God's control, but for the joy of our eternal souls, we are so, so grateful that it is true. Let's pray. Oh Lord, no one knows how to baffle and dazzle like Solomon. No one knows how to perplex us and exhilarate us like Solomon. And Lord, ultimately, these are your words. You wrote them in a poetic, philosophical-sounding way to get us to think, to get us to meditate. And yet the message is clear. You are in control. You are gloriously, outrageously sovereign over all things. And Lord, thank you for the conference this weekend in which we heard that clearly. Your control over sin and evil and suffering and Satan. We're so grateful. We are greatly enriched by that conference. Our hearts are nourished. Our hearts are reinforced. We, we have more steel in our souls with which we can face the terrors of a fallen world. We're grateful for that. 
And we're grateful for this time together in your son's matchless name. Amen.